The following was recorded on August 19, 2009. ReachMD XM160 now presents Second Opinion Live with hosts Drs. Matt Bernholtz and Michael Greenberg. Welcome to Second Opinion Live on ReachMD Radio XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. And I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg. This program's a little different from others on ReachMD because there are two hosts. And we're looking for your feedback right now, on the phone, on the web, and on Twitter. We're covering topics across the field of medicine, talking to experts you want to hear from. And today we're going to talk about the interesting new book, Compartments, from Wake, Universe, Wake Forest University's Dr. Stephen Feldman. Yeah, tweet us. Is your view of patients skewed by your assumptions, some of which may be unfounded? Do preconceived notions about colleagues interfere with your day-to-day communications? Dr. Feldman's book is a healthy reminder to all of us to put ourselves in someone else's compartments or shoes from time to time. Our number here is 888-MD-1-REACH. That's 888-631-7322. Give us a call now. And we've got a plethora of great topics today. First, is there a doctor on board? We're going to look at a new perspective on answering medical calls in flight. Should you be compensated for providing care at 40,000 feet? The answer coming up. Plethora, I like that. And we'll also stop by the ReachMD forum to talk preventative medicine. An ounce of prevention may be often better than a pound of cure. But there's times when that ounce of prevention is better spent on something else, or is there? Stop by the forum with us to get the details. Our number again is 888-MD-1-REACH. That's 888-MD-1-REACH. And first, our regular feature, ReachMD's That's News to Me, reviewing curious news headlines from the world of medicine. All right, Michael. I think you're probably never going to hear me say this on live on a live show again, but it's time for us to talk about redheads. It's been known for years that redheads are, by and large, more and more resistant to certain pain meds and require more pain anesthesia than blondes or brunettes. We even have genetic markers to back this up now, but did you know that this translates into fewer procedures sought by redheads nationwide? Yeah, and they're in the journal of the American Dental Association, redheads, it was noted, are twice as likely to avoid going to the dentist as individuals with other hair colors. And why is this? Are they just smart? <laughs> That's definitely one theory, uh, you know, especially where dental procedures are concerned. All right. Previous researchers have put forth results suggesting larger doses of anesthesia are required for redheads, who also may be resistant to local pain relievers like Novocaine. Yeah, and that's all been known, as well as some of the genetic studies from 2005, which picked out a mutation in a melanin-producing gene, which they call a melanocortin-1 receptor, or MC1R. And um, apparently that belongs to a family of genes, about um, 20 different mutations in all. And uh, some of them are, uh, some of the genes uh, also confer uh, pain receptors in the brain, I believe. And if mutated, it could theoretically at least change pain sensitivity. Right. A plethora of genes. Well, listen, you know, this goes back to my training. I remember when I was a pediatric resident in, and every time there was a C-section scheduled, just uh, out of legend, the doctors would have blood on hold for redheads. Mm-hmm. And so I think this shows us that there's often truth behind le- behind legends, and we need to do more research on this. Although in that case, you know, that uh, I, as I recall, the coagulation studies didn't really bear out the evidence. No, but there was always something different about redheads medically. It was just suggested. And you know, we always have to remember that folklore is often based on truth. And so it's, it, it's our job to sift through the folklore and tell what the truth is for 
very famous families like the Weasley family. You know, we have to take care of them. And, you just had to and go to Harry Potter on me I today. had to. And Lucille Ball and <laughs> all those famous people. They need medical help, and we need to take care of them appropriately. So, you know, what do we do about this? Do we encourage people to go to the dentist more? No, I think it requires more research, and, and, and we need to really look at this seriously because mm-hmm. there may be some other issues in people who have red hair that, that we're not looking at. Do you think it might actually come down to PSAs that tell redheads it's okay to go to the dentist? Yeah, think I might think get that it's always okay to go to the dentist. Absolutely. I think it's a good Especially idea. Especially for redheads. Absolutely. We want their teeth to be clean because they have all that beautiful hair. <laughs> all right. On to the ReachMD forum, Matt, and this important patient education issue. This time, there's a bill in Congress provoking a debate on preventative medicine. How much do young women really need to know about their risks of breast cancer in early adulthood, and what can be done about this? Yeah, so the uh, proposed EARLY Act, which I believe stands for Education and Awareness Requires Learning Young, uh, has uh, recently come out. It supports breast cancer education campaigns starting as early as high school and college. I think the target is 15 to 39 years of age. They're requesting about $9 million annually over five years. And, uh, you know, unsurprisingly, they already have 350-plus House co-sponsors. I believe it's uh, sponsored by Florida Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman, um, Wasserman Schultz, Schultz right. Wasserman, Wasserman Schultz, uh, herself being a breast cancer survivor at age uh, 42, and I think she's herself is going through double mastectomy, double oophorectomy. Yeah, look, she went through a lot, and, and this is a very sensitive issue, and, and in no way do we want listeners or anybody thinking that, that you know, what I'm about to say opposes this, but there was an article in the, the LA Times opinion by Stephen Woloshin and, and, and Lisa Schwartz talking about this, and, you know, interestingly enough that they're spending $9 million a year for five years. That's mm-hmm. a lot of money. You know, you could get a quarterback for that, and it reminds me of, they're, they're specifically saying that in this age group, less than... of breast cancers occur. And that actually the research shows that if we keep people, women who are heavier and have babies before 20 have a lower risk of breast cancer. Is this what we're going to teach girls? I mean, this is the truth according to our research today. Clearly that's not the kind of PR they want to attract for it. But I think they also had an interesting stat in this this health report. They were talking about uh, the 10-year mortality for 20-year-old women, that being the target base here, uh, of breast cancer being equivalent to a 70-year-old man dying of breast cancer. Right. And, and I, I'm all for early awareness, and we need to do this, but do we need to spend $45 million on this? It's like when I was younger and in practice, I'm still in practice, but younger, we, we used to do premarital testing on everybody for HIV, and we were spending millions and millions of dollars mm-hmm. on the wrong population. So can we make these kids aware for less than $45 million and put that money more on testing in the appropriate area and awareness where it needs to be in older women? Um, I don't know. Uh, but it's an emotional issue, and nobody's going to vote against this in Congress. No, no. I mean, that'd be terrible, but terrible if you, move but, if you were to vote against such a thing. But if you want to save money in health care, we have to look everywhere and, and start to tell the truth and see where this is appropriate. But it is worth noting that the ACS and the National Breast Cancer Coalition, neither of them support this bill. Absolutely. So. But, th- but of course, the Su- Susan Coleman group does. So there's, there's people on both sides of this issue. It's an important issue. We need to talk about these things. Fair enough. Now it's your turn. The ReachMD poll wants you to voice your opinion and vote. ReachMD XM160 now presents the ReachMD poll. All right, Michael. Today we're going to look at medical care on commercial flights. We want to know if listeners think physicians who are asked to help should be compensated for their time and expertise. You should log on to ReachMD.com to cast your ballot and see what your peers think. Yeah, I think this is a great one. I, I want to I see what people think because I've been on both sides of this issue. But, you know, here, here's the positive side of this, okay? Here's why we should be compensated. When you're on an airline flight, 
and, and you're making a decision on whether a plane should land early or not or what should happen, you're impacting every passenger on that flight. You're really mm-hmm. taking responsibility. And you really can save the airline's money and save people time and inconvenience to make the right decision because somebody's sick, you may have that plane landed early, and that costs a lot of money and, and screws up people's travel times. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a good point. And, you know, I'll, I'll put out the devil's advocate there. I mean, uh, obviously— Docs have a duty to help in situations where their medical expertise is needed. And, you know, granted, it sounds exploitative of airlines to some extent if uh, if they're going to just rely on physicians who are on board and do nothing else. But uh, I think it's a slippery slope. I mean, should we uh, pay for the should, – should we be paid for service uh, given anywhere else, a Walmart, a trains, uh, department stores? I mean, what what is exactly off the grid from our doctor's Well, code? planes are different. You know, there was, a, there was a case in October of 2006 about a doctor who was flying on Air Canada to France, and he had paid for business class tickets with miles. Mm-hmm. And during the flight, they asked him to take care of three people, all of whom were not emergencies. They woke him up in the middle of the night to take care of two. And – when he was done, they had him fill out a pile of incident reports, something that I don't think I would have actually done. I would have laughed in their faces. <laughs> and when he got done and he got back, he asked them to compensate him for the seat that he had bought mm-hmm. in, in miles. And they offered him 15,000 miles instead of the, I don't know how many it was, to for the free seat. He asked for $3,000 in compensation, and they offered him 1000 And actually, the court said in Canada that he should be compensated uh, because the the illnesses that they were treating the patients for were not emergent. They were just like, here you are, doc. Come treat our patients on mm-hmm. the flight. So they gave $1,000 instead of three. Were they indicating that uh, two out of those were non-emergent and one was? No, I think it was just they, they wanted them covered for the whole seat. But, you know, there's an issue here about um, liability and are you opening yourself up to liability if you're being paid? Does the Good Samaritan law cover you? There's a whole host of things that we can discuss here, and we can actually spend the rest of the show doing it, but we mm-hmm. don't have time. But I think it's, it's something we need to think about. How many times do you sit on a plane and they go, is there a doctor in, on board, and you want to go, uh, not Any me. Mean. I'm on vacation. <laughs> I'm a dermatologist. I'm a veterinarian. You know, I don't, mm-hmm. don't want to do it. <laughs> well, it's definitely uh, worth looking into. So what's your reaction? Share your thoughts with us on our website, ReachMD.com, where you too can vote on the ReachMD poll, and we want to hear from you. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, Michael, moving on to the ReachMD news quiz. All right, here's the deal. We take an issue in the news, break it down, and come up with a question that gets to the core of the issue. We'll give you time to think about it and the answer later in the show. So for today's news quiz, we're looking at poor medication adherence and how this impacts both the health of our patients and the overall health care bill. Policy experts at the New England Healthcare Institute are reporting on this issue. Uh, Yeah, and the the numbers, they are, and the numbers aren't really good. And listen, we know it's tough to get our patients to take their meds every day, and certainly we don't need to soapbox this issue and talk about it, but we've got to do better. The question is, for this week, how much money is squandered each year in America because our patients are not taking their medications as they're directed? And if the lawmakers in Washington are listening, this is the time to turn the dial up on the radio and listen, because we're going to tell you where you can save a fortune. That's a juicy one. And if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Second Opinion Live on ReachMD XM 160. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz, alongside Dr. Michael Greenberg. And here, yes, and we're just waiting for that quiz answer. And our number here is 888-MD1-REACH. That is 888 6 Three one seven three two two. That's MD One Reach is the number on Reach MDXM one sixty. If you've got something in your mind, give us a call. All right, Michael. It's always a plus when our topics do line up with our guests, and today is no exception because our upcoming guest was actually among the first to track med adherence rates. 
And he's got something interesting, some really interesting thoughts, I think, on perception and how our biases affect the way that we practice medicine. Yeah, you may not, for instance, understand why a patient stopped taking their medication, but your best shot at getting them to change that habit might just be to try to understand the situation from their perspective, from being a patient. And I know I've missed meds myself. <laughs> and I think we're all guilty of that. But that's exactly what Dr. Stephen, Stephen Feldman calls stepping into someone else's compartment. And that's a really familiar message if we're talking about selection biases or just our biases in general and our perspectives. But Dr. Feldman tailors it directly toward the special circumstances for doctors. So we caught up with him just a short time ago for this interview. And we're joined by Dr. Stephen Feldman. Dr. Feldman's a professor of dermatology, pathology, and public health sciences at Wake Forest University Baptist Medical Center in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Dr. Feldman is the author of a new book, Compartments, How the Brightest, Best trained and most caring people can make judgments that are completely and utterly wrong. Welcome to the show, Dr. Feldman. Or we're going to call you Steve. Steve would be great. That's Pleasure awesome. To be here. So, so here we are, the brightest, best trained people on this radio show. And I want to ask you about your book. The basis of your book is that we often make decisions with incorrect information. Can you elucidate on that? That's right. I think there are a lot of times when we are naturally drawn to making conclusions. Sometimes when we don't have any information about that thing that we're drawing conclusions about, other times we have information and it looks, it's, it's our experience, it looks like real information and yet it can be very unrepresentative. And then finally, the third thing that the book compartments covers is that even when we have accurate information, our mind twists it. Our mind creates a reality around it based on the context in which we make those observations. So in other words, one of the examples in your book is that as we dermatologists thought that GPs didn't know how to treat skin diseases because we were only seeing the failures, which might just be a couple percent. We don't see the successes, correct? That's right. This is a huge issue for interspecialty relationships. I've been practicing dermatology almost 20 years here at Wake Forest, and I can tell you I've seen thousands of patients that were referred over from the family physicians and the internists, and boy, it seems like they don't know what they're doing. Every patient either got the wrong diagnosis, got medications that didn't work, or medications that made things worse. And when you see that over and over again, like dermatologists tend to do, you begin to think, well, they don't know what they're doing. But it's hard to realize sometimes that when they make the right diagnosis, when they give the right treatment, and the patient gets better, they don't send the patient to see us. So we only see the failures. One of the really interesting things about this is that the laissez-faire dermatologists, the dermatologists who don't have a lot of energy may just ignore it. The dermatologists who are the most caring, most caring of their patients and really want to make sure things are done right, look at their experience and go, oh my God, we need to do something. There's all these problems and, and they don't know how to take care of patients. They, they must not care about their patients. And so they'll, they'll get active. They'll go to a legislature or something. And they're not doing it because they're trying to protect their turf, although it might look like that to people in the other specialty. They're actually doing it based on experiences that simply weren't representative. I see, Steve. What about, what about in your case? What was the tipping point for you to write this book? Why this message now about compartmental thinking? I was driven to do it now. Like other doctors, I got a busy practice and plenty of research going on, and I felt I had to get this out because everywhere I looked, it seems people were making mistakes on the basis of compartments. Within the specialty of dermatology, there were issues about whether it's a good or a bad idea to hire a physician extender in, into your practice. And 
you could imagine that those dermatologists who had never worked with a physician extender might have seen, you know, 6, 10, 12 patients who had seen a physician extender in another practice, and they would have all been treatment failures. And the, the dermatologists would get the idea that the physician extenders didn't really know what they were doing. Conflicts like that could be averted. Um, similarly, there's all sorts of issues with regulation of office-based surgery, and each specialty probably thinks doctors in other specialties don't have the same high standards of surgery that they should. Um, because if you're in one specialty, say you're a surgeon, and you see patients who had surgery done by a dermatologist, you're not likely to see those dermatologists' successes. But then these kind of issues, they occur everywhere. Um, I, I think they are even important between religions and between countries. Uh, you know, if, if you were opening up newspapers in the Middle Eastern Muslim world and trying to understand the United States from what you saw on the cover of the newspaper, you'd probably be reading about, well, our young women, Britney Spears maybe, uh, an American high school, probably the only one that you'd know about was Columbine, American businesses, you'd have heard about Enron, uh, you know, the American military, you'd have heard about Abu Ghraib day in and day out. Those would be the kinds of things people would hear about America and it would give a very warped perception of what we're like. And I have the feeling that they get a similarly warped perception of us. Do you think that this is apropos to what's happening with health care reform? Do you think that perhaps our government should be coming and spending some time in our offices, sitting next to us, watching how patients are treated to really learn what works in the system? Or are they working in their own compartment? The healthcare issue is a huge issue right now, and and everybody in it is working in their own compartment. So you have the doctors working in their compartment; they don't always see what happens at home in the patient's compartment. The insurers are in another compartment, the pharmaceutical companies in another, and the regulators in yet another. And the people in each of these compartments think that the people in the other compartments are evil, greedy people who just care about the money and don't really care about patients. I mean, we doctors know we desperately care about patients and want to see a healthcare system that gives patients great care. And we look in, at the insurance companies and drug companies and think, well, maybe they're the problem. Um, the uh, people at the insurance company probably go home at night thinking, you know, I spent my day helping people get access to medical care, and I did a really good job today. And, uh, you know, I, I did my best to make sure they get cost-effective quality care that they have access. And my job would be a whole lot easier if the doctors and the drug companies weren't just in it for the money. And the people at the drug companies are probably going home at night thinking, our company makes the drugs that actually improve patients' lives. You know, the problem we have is that these doctors and insurance companies are standing in the way. And, of course, nobody likes the lawyers. But they think they're doing a good job too, right? Undoubtedly. I mean, they think when they're you protecting at, patients from the evil doctors. I'm sure that's what they must be thinking. People in, in one group tend to think ill of people in another group. And, and the bottom line message of this book is that when you look at other people, don't jump to conclusions about the way they think about the world because they, their thinking is probably more like yours than you'd like to believe. You know, this reminds me of a short story I read, and I, I don't remember who wrote it. I think it was Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, about two soldiers, German and I think French, across the trenches from each other in World War I. It was Christmas, and they started to talk, and the bottom line was they asked each other what they were fighting for, and they both were fighting for the exact same thing. They were fighting for freedom, for liberty, for God, whatever, and it was, it was, it was a profound story, and, and your book reminds you of that. So how in our practices, for instance, let's get a little bit closer to home now. How in our practices can we use this type of 
basic information to make our patients happier and make us happier and get along better with colleagues. Sounds like you have some really good ideas about that. With regard to getting along with colleagues, I think step one is to talk with them. Uh, my specialty, dermatology, we're kind of in our own little boxes, sometimes in our own offices, may not spend much time in the hospital, uh, may not be in the doctor's eating area, eating with other doctors or in the OR with them, uh, sharing stories, sharing experiences. And we can get warped ideas about other people very easily. And likewise, since they don't know us, they may get very weird ideas about us. So integrating into medical organizations, uh, having cross-specialty communication, all that's very helpful, even in training programs. I think when you're training in a specialty like dermatology, you should have exposure to the plastic surgeons and how they do things and the ENT doctors. And likewise, they need to learn about how we perceive things. With regard to patients, there's all sorts of opportunities for, for people to get the wrong idea of each other. One of the... Um, the crazy things I did was creating one of these doctor rating websites, uh, doctorscore.com, and I talked to doctors about this, and many are fearful that, that, that patients will give them a low score. Well, we looked at the doctors who had 20 or more ratings, and the average doctor's patient satisfaction score was over 9 on a 0 to 10 scale, where 10 was the best you could be. I think very few people realize that that. Doctors are giving their patients great medical care. Most patients are extraordinarily happy with their doctors. There are a lot of things about the current system that's working great. Maybe not everybody has access, and certainly we could improve on that. But the doctors are giving patients great care every day. So do you think that uh, in the context, when you talk about the health system, in the context of all this momentum for health reform now, that the three major categories of, of medicine that you highlighted in your book, the, the docs, uh, the pharma, the insurers, do you think there's going to be more opportunities for communication or is there going to be escalating tension and hostility? Or before you answer that, what should we do as doctors to make sure that we're heard? Is that our responsibility to make sure that we get out of our compartment and have them hear us? Two questions. Well, yes, I think getting out of the compartment, breaking down those walls and making sure uh, people are heard and understood is critically important. I had the opportunity on a n number of occasions to speak to managed care pharmacists. And physicians have a tendency to look at these people as the, as the no-sayers, the people who deny approval for medications that we think our patients need. And and I talked to these guys, and they thought they were the white knights who were protecting patients from doctors who would prescribe expensive biologics because the company was providing the doctor donuts. I mean, it's just a ridiculous notion. And clearly, when you talk to these people, you realize, wow, these people really do care about patients. They really do want to see patients get good medical care. They want to make sure that inappropriate care, unnecessarily expensive care isn't done. And I think they really do want to work closely with physicians. They're not the enemy. They could easily be partners. And I think by thinking of them as partners, we're going to have a much better opportunity of working together to improve patients' outcomes. Okay. Well, to tie this up, it seems to me that the book is really good wisdom. It's the old idea of don't judge another person until you stand in their shoes or walk a mile in their moccasins or whatever you want to talk about here. But... Um, the, the book is Compartments. Um, could you leave us with one last thought? Well, I, th I think if one were to read the book, one would get a really good sense, really drill into one's mind this idea that 
there's a whole world out there that we don't see, and we need to be very circumspect about drawing conclusions from our observations. Thank you. Thank you, Steve, for joining us today. Matt and Michael, thank you so much for having me. A great interview. And, you know, when we first picked up this book, we discussed that, you know, this is simple, old stuff that we all are supposed to know, Matt, but it's stuff we keep forgetting. And as, as healthcare changes and as the world changes, it's just so important. That's why I think this book is great, to, to, to always think of the other side. Mm-hmm. And, and all of these sides in the healthcare debate right now, we're really all going for the same thing. Even if we don't like what the other side's doing, you have to remember, we've all got the same goal. We're trying to yeah. fix the flaws in healthcare. You know, I mean, clearly we're we're in the same game together. We're, we at least assume that everyone's trying to do well by others, but we have to find that common ground. But my one concern, though, is that on a micro level, you know, from a one person's practice to another, I think this is much more manageable in scope. If we're talking about the national uh, level, if we're talking about pharma versus uh, insurance versus doctors in a general, that's a pretty difficult thing to, to handle, I would imagine, a very difficult challenge. You just expand it. You just do it in your own life, and you, you encourage other people to do it, too. When you're at a debate or, or we're talking about these things, stand in the other guy's shoes for just a few seconds and, and, and see what happens. Or take a step back and realize the, guy, the other side's not the enemy. We're all fighting for the same thing in healthcare today. And, and you, even in a hospital, we have turf wars, and yet what are we all looking for? Patient care. You know, turf wars happen to be about money. So step away from it for a second and realize, gee, yeah, we're all looking for the same thing. We all want to make a good living. We all want to take care of patients and and stop seeing people as enemies. Come on the same side of the table, in yeah. other words, and realize we're all looking at the same goal. I think that that's very important here. You know, we never really asked him why we compartmentalized, did we? Uh, we never really asked, uh, essentially, do we compartmentalize um, as as part of our human nature and that causes us to have the specialties that we do? Or do we specialize uh, and in the process, start to compartmentalize our thinking. A perfect segue into the next segment because uh-huh. it's like, you know, why do we do the things we do? I think it's human nature. That's my thought, and we have to overcome it. All right. Let's get you the answer to the news quiz, which everybody has been dying to, to hear. Turn up your radio there in Washington. And as you may recall, we've asked you to identify a number, a really, really big number. It's the money spent each year, more than our salaries here at ReachMD, projected by the New England Healthcare Institute, treating the consequences of poor adherence to medications as they are prescribed. Well, you know, it probably doesn't come as a surprise to many of you that the answer is in the billions and I, I have to say, it's sad to think that terms like this should even sound like drops in the deficit bucket these days. But there is more than a few billions in this case, and it will probably raise some eyebrows. The answer for today's news quiz is $290 billion per year. $290 billion. Oh, gosh. Well, billion dollars. The New England Healthcare Institute defines poor adherence as failure to pick up or renew medication, to take prescribed dosages at or intervals, or, or to fail persistence or altogether abandonment of medication. So... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's one of today's biggest challenges in, cl- in clinical medicine, getting patients to take their medications. I know. Really? Yeah. I'm in practice. I have patients who walk in all the time, and they st- start by saying, my medication isn't working. And I go, well, tell me about it. And then they tell me they didn't bother to take it. Mm-hmm. And that's what Feldman did in his initial research. He tested people, and, and he saw that we all lie. We take our medication for a few days after we leave the doctor's office. Then we, we lie about it. And then we take it again when we're, we're set up for another visit. So He had such a great way of doing that, too, of finding that out, didn't he? Didn't he put electric signals? Microchips <laughs> in, the, in the caps of bottles. And he told patients they were going to weigh the amount that they had used on, on psoriasis. And so patients would, I think, take stuff out and throw it away. And they'd, they'd 
all journaled that they took the medication, even doctors, mm -hmm. and they, they frankly lied about it. They didn't know the microchips were there, and every time that bottle was opened, it was recorded on a computer chip. I'm um, sure that doctors uh, probably were the most responsible. We do make the worst patients. But, I mean, we've all, <laughs> I have to say, we, we've all seen patients admitted for MIs, uncontrolled blood sugar, and they don't use their meds, and you ask them about that, and they say, well, I didn't have a problem then. I have a problem now. And that, that thinking is always there. For me, it always kind of comes down to uh, pain. People are always cognizant of the pain. And especially uh, for people with chronic pain syndromes, uh, chronic pain issues, they become highly overcognizant. And that's why they become, you know, they become dependent, they become drug-seeking, but never with these chronic issues that aren't pain-related. Precisely. And it's why we, we you know, I'm, I'm told every day to see patients less often, to save them money, save the insurance company mm -hmm. money. But it's really those recurrent visits that I have a chance to go talk to the patient and emphasize the need for their medication. It's all, I think it's all about doctor-patient education and, and telling patients the importance of why they should take it, even if they're not in pain. Mm -hmm. I think as, as far as uh, we, we mentioned heart patients, we, heart, we mentioned diabetes, there was a study that was uh, mentioned in this paper that talked about uh, the mortality for diabetics and heart patients. If they were diligent with their meds, it was 7% mortality over, over a year. If, there was, if they were not, it was 12%. So, I mean, clearly the scope of this is huge, huge. Uh, as far as noncompliance. And I, have, I, th I think we need to distinguish, is this, are we talking non-adherence, noncompliance, or both? Because they're slightly different in, in our meaning, aren't they? Well, noncompliance is not taking your medication probably is a conscious choice, and non-adherence is taking it, you know, forgetting. Mm -hmm. um, but either way, I think this has to be brought into the equation of where we save money for health care. People need to do their job in America, take their medication and keep the cost of health care down. So how do you write that into a 1,000-page bill? I'm not sure how you do that. <laughs> okay, the law is you have to take your medication or else. Mm -hmm. But I, I think well, it worked for tuberculosis, didn't it? Yeah, I know. But I think as physicians, it's our responsibility to start to think of better ways to remind patients to take our medication. Maybe we need to send them emails or tweet them all the time. Let's tweet them. That is always the answer on this show. I think so. <laughs> and with that, we are out of time today here on Second Opinion Live. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. And I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg. For more about ReachMD Radio on XM160, visit our wonderful website at ReachMD.com. We definitely thank you for joining us on ReachMD. We love to do this show for you. Please call us and keep listening. 